Space News Roundup for June 2016. You're listening to SpexCast. Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. I'm Phil, and joining me today we have TJ. Hello. And Augie. Hello. And this is going to be a short episode uh, just to cover some recent news that's happened in the space industry and the space community. And um, like it's been a while since we've had a last episode, so we're going to cover all the topics that have happened, uh, or at least a few that have happened this summer. So the first thing uh, we can talk about is Blue Origin's Rocket Factory, if Augie's ready to talk about that. Sure, yeah. So basically, um, Jeff Bezos um, is the CEO of Amazon, and he's been funneling a lot of his um, fortune, personal fortune, into Blue Origin. And they're currently working on a suborbital rocket that they've flown four times. It's called New Shepard. They've flown and landed it. Um, They've even tried recently a parachute test where they knocked out one of the parachutes and there's three, so they're redundant. So with two parachutes, it was able to safely return to Earth. And their eventual goal is to scale up that platform to an orbital class rocket and have that be reusable like SpaceX is currently working on. Right, so when you say they reused it, they actually reflew the same vehicle four different times? Yep, which um, no one has done yet in the industry. Um, it's a, not an orbital rocket like SpaceX has. It's something that just goes straight up, and their idea for their suborbital rocket is that they'll use it for uh, commercial passengers who want to cross the Kármán line uh, and actually experience outer space. So when they scale up rockets, um, I, I think there have been either rumors or maybe a little bit of news of their orbital class launcher. Is that going to be... They, do they intend to land that just like the new Shepard and reuse uh, it? Yep, yep, they do. And, and there hasn't been a whole lot of information about that yet until just recently uh, Blue Origin announced this massive facility that they're building in Florida um, that's going to be the whole production of their uh, full orbital class rocket. And they're going to be a direct competitor to SpaceX and other launch providers. Um, but they're pursuing reusability from the beginning. And they're uh, saying that the whole point of the suborbital rocket was just so they could test rocket reusability and then scale up to the more expensive orbital class. And they also released a couple images, renders of the factory with a little kind of teasing hints. You can see that their first stage of their very big brother booster, which is their orbital rocket, has two BE-4 engines on it. So we're kind of getting a better sense of like the design of that rocket. Uh, so that's really exciting. Also, it's, it's really interesting. This is probably not the first case, but it's a return to rockets being built right next to their uh, launch pad, the actual factory, which currently SpaceX has their factories on in LA and they ship them across the country. But the rumor and general point of view is that for their next generation of rockets, the BFR and the Mars Colonial Transporter are gonna be so big that they have to be built uh, next to the launch pad. So if SpaceX ends up choosing Florida as their launch site, then Florida will be getting a lot more rocket factories in the next couple of years, which is really exciting. Yeah, that's super cool. Uh, speaking of new rockets and, and facilities, Sierra Nevada um, 
showed off their Dream Chaser test article. Yeah, so Sierra Nevada Corp is a uh, kind of a legacy aerospace corporation, but is also competing in the commercial crew or commercial resupply program. So they um, have their Dream Chaser spacecraft, which is actually a inherited from a NASA space plane project. It was originally a lifeboat for the ISS. And so they bought a lot of the rights and kind of redesigned it. So they were originally competing for the commercial crew program and they got down selected. So they've taken the same design, they've made it a little bit smaller and made it fully autonomous for a cargo vehicle. And they actually won a CRS-2 contract. So now they have a source of guaranteed income. They're working on developing that. And so they just built a new, uh, test article. So this is not ever going to go into space. They describe it as the space shuttle Enterprise of their uh, craft. And if you remember, Enterprise was just what they used for uh, landing tests. So testing the aerodynamics of this lifting body. So it's going to be really, uh, it's really cool to see progress on that front. And for uh, fans of space planes, this is pretty much the only modern space plane that's in development, in serious development. So it's exciting for those kind of fans. Yeah, for sure. SpaceX has um, a test article as well for Falcon Heavy. Yes. So um, the Falcon 9, the first landed Falcon 9 orb that did the Orbcom 2 mission that landed in December is finally back in Hawthorne, California. They trucked it back. And while it was on the street getting inspected, there was another Falcon 9 core outside. Uh, which was rather unusual. Usually they wrap them up in the factory and they just ship them out real fast. And with careful observation, some people noticed that there are new attachment points on the side of the core and a new OctaWeb thrust structure, which points to a Falcon Heavy test article. So we believe it's not going to be a flight core, so it's not going to be actually flying when Falcon Heavy first flies, but it's going to be used to test uh, structural forces and all that fun stuff. And so that's actually in McGregor, Texas, their testing facility right now, undergoing whatever structural testing that they need to get done. And then there's a very shaky rumor that Falcon Heavy will launch Christmas, the week of Christmas, which is, you know, Falcon Heavy has a very long history of being delayed, so I wouldn't I mean, get then your hopes would up too much. still technically be 2016, right? Yeah, that, that would totally qualify the 2016, but it's, I, I'm very excited with everything that's going on in space. So once Falcon Heavy flies, I'll be happy, but, I'm not going to get too excited about a date just yet. Yeah. When, when's the uh, current projected time for a refly of uh, a booster, of a regular Falcon 9? Have they updated anybody on that yet? Uh, Elon mentioned September. So obviously the June-July initial assumption was a little too uh, eager. It's funny because when he made that, he's like, oh, I want to say, and then he's like, wait a minute, let me calculate for the fact that I'm always off on my deadlines. Uh, let's say this summer. You know what I mean? It's just funny how he already yeah. recalculated. I mean, September does count as the end of summer. Um, I, I hold that September date in a much more realistic way than whatever the June-July dates, considering we're already Sorry, through July. July. <laughs> Nothing's really happened on that front, um, but the reu or the landed cores are going through testing. Obviously, the first ones on display. Um, I think Jake CSAT. I don't remember the core number, 
had a very, very rough re-entry, and that's going for the full battery of tests. So that's the most rough recovered booster they have now. So they're going to take it to McGregor. So there's actually three Falcon 9s at McGregor right now, which is unusual. I believe there's only interior storage for one core. So they got a couple very large lawn ornaments out there. All right. Um, Drew, by the way, just joined us. So everybody say hi to Drew. Um, speaking of SpaceX cores outside the facility, um, there are some pictures that came up on Reddit of the Orbcom 2 stage that landed uh, at the launch site in Cape Canaveral in December. And SpaceX has plans to put that up kind of as like a monument almost outside of their facility. And it, I highly recommend going to reddit.com slash r slash SpaceX to check out these pictures because it's crazy to see like I don't know, just the wear and tear of something that lobbed something up into space and came back and landed propulsively. It's super cool. They're going to put it with like the landing legs out, standing upright, and you, it's going to be seen from miles. I'm so excited. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, dude. All right, let's talk about Launcher 1. Yeah, so this is a news item I kind of just snuck in there. Uh, but we finally got more concrete plans on the Launcher 1 by Virgin Galactic. So Virgin Galactic's most well-known for uh, Spaceplane 1 and Spaceplane 2 and White Knight, which is an air-launched spaceplane that is suborbital and is designed for orbital or space tourism. So taking paying passengers into what is space and having a couple minutes of zero-g and landing. They had a very unfortunate accident in 2014 uh, from Pilot Air for their space plane, but that program is now back on track. But they have a new program called Launcher One, which is a air-launched rocket booster for putting satellites into orbit. Now this is very similar to the Pegasus system, which is done by Orbital ATK, which was a converted military missile that can put satellites into orbit. But we finally have some really cool details. Uh, instead of using their modified airplane White Knight 1, they bought a 747 from Virgin Airlines. Uh, so that's their carrier plane, and that allows uh, launching in any uh, inclination. So instead of having to launch from a fixed latitude from a launching pad, the 747 can fly to the latitude and then launch, which is uh, helpful for whatever kind of orbit uh, you're launching into. Yeah, so we then also you don't learn... need the extra delta V to like change your inclination once you're in space, right? Otherwise, exactly. like, if you launch from Cape Canaveral, you're pretty much at the equator, and then you have to move your latitude in space. But if you're launched straight from like Rochester, which is about 40 degrees north, then you can have an angle 40 degrees of inclination for your orbit right off the bat. Yes, uh, mainly with inclination is that limits uh, your lower inclination without having to do a maneuver. And so what's real good about this is if you're going to geostationary, which is at zero degrees inclination, you can fly down south as far as you, <clears throat> the, the fuel for the 747 can go, and that way you get a little bit extra boost from the Earth's rotation with that, uh, which is very helpful. Uh, we also learned that they're going with composite fuel tanks, which is still uh, rather unusual with uh, rocket um, bodies. They're also developing their own engines in-house. They have what's called the Newton series of rocket engines. Uh, they quip that they're the first ones to claim the name Newton for a rocket engine, so 
congrats on Virgin Galactic for taking the obvious name. Uh, and from what we appear to know, they are pressure-fed Carolox engines. So their pressure-fed engines are relatively easy to design, uh, but they're not as efficient as a turbo-pumped engine, and they don't have that much thrust. So it looks like uh, design's progressing really fast for them. They have what looks like aerodynamic test articles. They have the, the launcher plane. They have some images um, from their test stand of testing the Newton engines, which looks like great progress. So like, if you had asked me three months ago how Launcher One was going, I would have said that until I saw like concrete facts, it was all just ideas. But this is concrete evidence and concrete plans of them progressing, and it's really exciting. The composite fuel tanks is a big deal. Um, DJ, you were telling me a couple of weeks ago, like modern um, launch vehicles use aluminum tanks to hold the, the fuel, which is at cryogenic temperatures. Yeah, so um, the X-33 Venture Star program back in the 90s, they needed a very high mass fraction because they were doing a single stage to orbit. And they ran into an issue of they needed composite tanks to meet that mass fraction, but they not only did they have liquid oxygen, they were also trying to control liquid hydrogen, which is even colder. And so one of the issues they encountered was the composites delaminating because you have carbon fiber and then layers of epoxy and that forms a, the strong material. And that epoxy would freeze and become brittle and the tank would fail. And so they had a lot of issues uh, getting the making equipment that could build large tanks and fixing that uh, epoxy issue. But they eventually did it. NASA engineers created flight-ready tanks. So they actually finished at the very end of the program before it got canceled. They finished the pro they fixed the problem and they were able to make cryogenic composite tanks, but the program got canceled overall. So it's really cool that uh, people have been using that innovative technology and actually applying it now because we've had it, we've had the knowledge for the past 20 years, but we haven't had applications for that. So it's really exciting that uh, Launcher One is using composite tanks and the current one of the rumors for SpaceX's BFR is that it's going to be using composite tanks as well. So BFR being their larger... Big Falcon rocket, yeah, they're larger version, the, the iteration after Falcon Heavy. But isn't one of the reasons why composites haven't been used or tested so much uh, because of the cost? Um, like to manufacture a giant uh, aluminum, um, aluminum's cheap nowadays. I mean, it used to be worth its weight in gold, but um, since we've in the past always thrown our rockets away after we bring a satellite to orbit, um, it's extremely expensive to build the whole fuselage and everything out of a composite material. But if you can get something like a space plane or something reusable, then that's probably where the cost-benefit analysis benefits doing a composite. But you still have to solve all those material science issues of delamination. Yeah, with the reusable Venture Star, that's where they went with composites, one of the reasons. And BFR, is supposedly both stages are going to need to be reusable. So when you have a vehicle that you can basically invest and do a higher, a higher grade of technology, 
for an increased cost, but you can reuse it, the, the reuse can make those extra initial costs worth it in the end. Um, I don't think there's any plans for Launcher 1 to be reusable, but just because of the constraints of their platform, they have a relatively small rocket. They, they just need that enhanced mass fraction. So that's you know a trade-off between cost and just performance because you only have so much margin you can fit into a given volume. Yeah, speaking of uh, cost and new technology and rockets and stuff, um, the an SLS uh, booster, which is a solid rocket booster, was uh, tested, I don't know, maybe a week ago or two? Um, the 28th of June. The 28th of June? Cool. Yeah, I saw a video of it on, on NASA's Twitter. Freaking insane, dude. Yeah, and that's just one of the boosters. Yeah, uh, Drew, can you talk about the SLS booster a little bit? I can try to. So this was the second and last full-scale test of the booster. There are two boosters on the SLS, and then the um, I think the main four rockets at the base of the primary launch stage. Yeah, it looks a lot like the um, the space shuttle configuration where there are the two giant solid rocket boosters on the side, except take that and scale it up big time. Oh yeah, this is twenty percent um, more energy than the uh the system for the shuttle yeah with these solid boosters they're made by the same company uh orbital atk it used to just be atk uh they are i believe five segments so they're built modularly in these big kind of cylinders and then all those cylinders are stacked together and then they put a nozzle at the end uh, and then one thing to keep in mind when we think like solid rocket motors when we see it, we're like, oh, there's flame coming out the bottom. You have this big tube of fuel. A lot of people assume that it burns from the bottom all the way up to the top. That's actually not what happens. There's actually a small hole that goes through the middle, and it burns from the inside of the entire tube outwards. So the longer you make the booster, the more uh, thrust you have initially and then finally. And so there's all sorts of really interesting ways of designing that hole, doing different uh, geometric shapes, you can actually uh, control that thrust in flight. Yeah, based on the surface area, like if you change, instead of a circle inside, you have like a star pattern or something, there's a different amount of surface area, so a different amount of fuel available to combust. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. It's it's all surface area because this is this premix, so it already has the fuel and oxidizer mixed together. So as the more exposed surface area you have, the more thrust you have. Uh, so by doing those different designs, you can change the thrust profile a little bit. Um, but these are even bigger than the space shuttle boosters and do a lot of the same role. They give most of the thrust to take off, and those four uh, RS twenty five space shuttle engines on the main core will kind of be a uh, kind of like a second stage where the booster, they're ignited at liftoff, but most of the thrust come from the solids. The solids detach, and then those the hydrodox engines get it almost all the way into orbit. It's so cool to see SLS hardware like being tested and made. Um, as for me, seeing ULA and SpaceX and Blue Origin and even now with Launcher One and everything, like all this hardware is coming online, and it's great to see SLS and NASA right there testing their hardware alongside them. Um, speaking of NASA, another big news: um, Juno, the space probe, 
as um, it'll reach Jupiter on July 4th. So that's a couple days from when we're recording this. Um, and a couple days ago, it just entered Jupiter's magnetosphere. So this is like a space probe that's the size of a basketball court, essentially. It's a huge, um, basically what looks like a core with massive solar panels um, that extend out in three different directions. And it's the it's a probe that's dedicated to send to Mars. We've done a lot of observations, or Mars, uh, Jupiter, excuse me. Um, and we've done a lot of observations with flybys past Jupiter because it's used for gravity assists um, to kick things out further um, out into the solar system. But Juno is dedicated to study Jupiter and it's one of my favorite planets and I'm really excited to see what comes out of this. Yeah, it's really um, cool. Um, in a JPL article, uh, they described this um, entering the magnetosphere, they, they experienced a boom shock, which could be called the sonic boom for the radiation particles that they experience. And they, in this article, they mentioned that, just to put it in perspective, if the magnetosphere was, in, was visible, if it were visible light in the Earth night sky, it would appear twice the size of the moon. And that's the front half, the smaller teardrop portion. The part that extends behind the planet would be five AU long. So like if we could see it, like right now, all we can see is a, what looks like a tiny star that is Jupiter, but it would be. So massive. it wouldn't be twice as bright as the moon. It, like it would just be twice the length of the diameter of the moon. Wow. We see. Still, that's insane. Have you guys listened to it? They had a posting on Twitter this morning that you can actually hear the um, as it enters the magnetosphere. It's kind of cool. It's like well, I'll play a clip right now. Insert clip here. Yeah. So just to clarify, uh, the audio volume and pitch is correlated to the amplitude and frequency of the recorded waves from Juno as it goes from um, place in space where the sun dominates the environment to Jupiter's sphere of influence. And this comes from NASA JPL. Other space science stuff that I want to talk about, gravitational waves were detected for a second time by LIGO. So it wasn't a fluke uh, the first time. And the second round of, of observations just further corroborate the fact that like what we're observing are gravitational waves. They are showing us what we think they're showing us. Um, and we'll have even more data to analyze. So now we're when scientists look at these waves and try to, you know, backtrack and say, well, this is the mass of the black holes that were merging and, and all that. Now they'll have a second um, set of data points that they can compare against. And professors at RIT, uh, with their graduate and undergraduate research students, even developed a new way to detect black holes using this um, using new techniques. So at LIGO, they get this data. And prior to discovering gravitational waves, um, at the RIT Center for Computational Relativity and Gravitation, they simulated things and were like, oh, this is what we think gravitational waves are going to look like. Well, now that we have gravitational waves, they can refine their techniques and their models and get even better simulations. And then instead of predicting gravitational waves, they can do the opposite and take the waves 
and use it sort of as an input to something and like backtrack and get the masses. Um, so that's really cool. The professors that were working on it are Carlos Lausto and Richard O'Shaughnessy. Uh, sorry if I butchered, butchered those names. Um, but if you remember Monica Rizzo from episode five, uh, she actually worked on this stuff too. Pretty cool stuff. I just wanted to give a shout out to the CCRG again. And the last thing I have on our kind of news bulletin list is Space VR. So there's a, a startup that's putting, uh, so they, they take three, 360 degree videos and they're putting those cameras and that idea into CubeSats, into space. So they just opened up their platform for uh, viewing outer space in VR or 360 degree video uh, for pre-orders. And you can get a one year subscription for 35 bucks. Have you, have you guys tried the VR yet? Or like the Google Cardboard, any of that kind of stuff? It looks like their space VR works with uh, Google Cardboard, which is, it's literally like a, Google charges like five or 10 bucks for it. it. It came for free in a New York Times subscription, so I got to use it. And it's just a piece of cardboard you hold over your face, and they have this little um, like button that they use, like a touch capacitive thing, so you can press on your phone. And you slip your phone in into the piece of cardboard, and um, you can download a ton of like free virtual reality apps. It's actually really, really cool. Um, so I, I can't wait for this kind of space VR stuff to, to be a reality. It looks like their first footage is off of a high-altitude balloon as well. Have you guys seen uh, the Space VR thing actually on their website? It has the whole Sierra 7 launch, uh, but it's from the ground. It's kind of cool. You can like angle it and like follow the rocket as it goes up. and Ultimately, it blows up because it's Sierra 7, but they have some other cool like hab videos and stuff like that on, on the website. Can you see the failure? Yeah, you can see it blow up. Um, you're from the ground, but yeah, you can watch everybody's reactions, all the photographers like taking pictures and stuff like that. It'll be really cool if you can eventually get one of these on like a uh, uh, dragon capsule and like watch the docking of the International Space Station in virtual reality. That that like that's coming at some point. Like it's definitely. ULA did the same thing, but with uh, Delta Four, the most not the most recent uh, Delta Four heavy launch, and their camera was on the uh, support mast, and so you're basically within like a hundred feet from the Delta Four heavy, and so like you can go full 360. It's awesome. Wow, that's really cool. I'm surprised they don't have these type of cameras on the space station already. I think they this company had been working on a essentially this, but instead of having CubeSat. VR satellites, it was just going to be a module inside the cupola on the ISS, so you could essentially see what the astronauts see from within the ISS and through their window. Very cool. SpaceX has a uh, 360 barge landing video. Oh yeah, that's cool too. It's a drone ship, TJ. Come on, TJ. Autonomous spaceport drone ship. Yeah, and then this September, Elon's mission to Mars. Uh, the plans are going to be announced this September. Oh, I can't wait. He mentioned... Uh, about a month ago, he wants Dragon to fly by, or he wants to send people by 2024 to Mars aboard the, the new Dragon capsule and everything. So that means everything else that it, that depends on <laughs> has to happen before then. Yeah. Well, not, not to Mars on the new Dragon capsule, to Mars on Mars Colonial Transporter, which I think is very, yes, very big 
goal for them. Because, like, when he said 2025, it's like, okay, there's some wiggle room. It's like, no, we're launching in 2024, and they're going to land in 2025. It's like, all right, you're just shaving margin off yourself. I don't know. I fully expect it to slip, like, a year or two. Well, it has to. If they miss that that launch window, they have to wait two years. But just having a plan that has, like, we're doing this – in one year, this in two years, this in three years, is so much better than the current uh, plan of we're going to do something in 20 years. Yeah. Because right, there's no right, progress yeah. to that. Well, that's what, it, yeah. Like NASA's outline isn't isn't tangible. And, and they have to do that kind of stuff because they're, they're government-funded. But that's what's cool about SpaceX. They may slip, but at least they have the goals. And at least that's exciting for people. Hopefully it's getting getting more people excited about applying and, like, joining the company helping the mission yeah red mars is going to be a really exciting thing oh yeah red dragon i just finished red mars in that series that's a good series um but yeah with red dragon nasa has like 30 million dollars worth of experiments that they think they can have ready before red dragon the 30 million is the amount nasa expects to spend in support of the mission using its personnel and assets it's not the payment for payloads so, I mean, it's, it certainly would be great if NASA could come up with a payload and, and pay SpaceX uh, to send it. But I also think there's a bunch of uh, private universities and a bunch of other um, agencies that would want to spend money to send something to Mars. But at the same time, SpaceX has to show that it's feasible first. So they may end up fronting a lot of the cost for the first mission, but then being able to do additional scientific missions for another company's at another company's dime to send their hardware. Yeah, SpaceX wants to send... A red dragon every window. You would think it would be fairly easy to send multiple, but what landing, what launch sites could they launch from? I mean, that'd be the only constraint. I mean, yeah. you have. Well, no, you. Yeah, it's a window, but it's not like a one-day window. You could uh, have rockets prepared, and then you could. Uh, it's like a couple months, isn't it? And then you could send, you know, however many, however many you could. I, I guess I don't know what the uh, what the bottleneck would be. It either be how fast you can manufacture the BFR. That's probably a big bottleneck. Or it could be how many payloads are out there that people have the money to pay to send to Mars. Can't um, they send a dragon to Mars on a Falcon Heavy? Oh yeah, they could. If it was a dragon. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Not 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 BFR. With launch windows, it's, so it's a couple weeks, but there's like one point that is optimal, and then it slowly becomes less optimal in that window, Yep. and then becomes very, very unoptimal. So that's like your window. I, so like, I think that window is a couple months, though, just from reading uh, Rise of the Rocket Girls where they developed all that stuff and they sent the first Mars missions. I know they, they their first one like blew up and they built the next one in time to launch it within the window. So Yeah, it's like you could launch like a Falcon Heavy and then refurbish the pad and put another Falcon Heavy on there. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying this will be the 2018 launch, but maybe 2020 they can do a few. It's simple. Well relatively simple from a mission design standpoint to like launch them into orbit and have them in low earth orbit and then have them all launch from low earth orbit at the same time. But the fa- the second stage doesn't last long enough to do that. Why well, you wouldn't need to do that though. If the window is a couple weeks or a couple months, it doesn't take them that long to refurbish the pad. Yeah. Yeah. So you can do, you can do that. Um, but just having like a bunch and then launching at the most optimal time, but I mean, that's what they're going to do with the BFR, though, right? That's their plan when they actually send humans. Um, maybe not one group of humans, but when they send a bunch of humans to actually colonize, they're going to put them all in low Earth orbit and then launch at the most optimal time, right? Yeah, we'll find out the details. I want to see September. You. <laughs> so close. So far. 
And this has been a Space News Roundup for June 2016. Thanks for listening to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. Stay tuned for uh, an episode that we're releasing right after this one. It's an interview with a few engineers that built Violet, a satellite from the Space Systems Design Studio at Cornell University. With this episode um, being mostly current events focused and the interview being really technical, uh, we're experimenting with the episodes this summer. Reach out to us and tell us what you like. Do you want to see more technical things? Do you want to see more news? It'll really help us develop the show. We're still working on uh, a couple other episodes for you guys this summer as part of our Specs Summer Series from SpexCast. So look out for that. We'll announce everything from our Twitter page at RIT Specs. And we'll be posting stuff to Facebook at facebook.com slash RIT Specs. Our music is by Kevin Hartnell. And this has been SpexCast.